Hey guys, welcome to the show. We have a super exciting episode for you from a special event that I did in St. Joseph, Missouri last week with my good friend Melissa Odin, the abortion survivor and the founder and director of the Abortion Survivors Network. And we dived into a wide range of conversation on the culture of death. Melissa told her story of surviving a saline abortion in her mother's womb and how her existence today strikes fear into the hearts of pro-abortion advocates. I explained sort of the demonic and religious underpinnings of abortion and the Democrat party and what happens to a society that abandons God and deifies themselves. We cover everything from questions like, why does the Democrat party hate abortion survivors and veto bills that would protect them? Are the back alley abortions from the 60s a good reason to keep abortion legal now? And how can we as Christians engage at the local level to end abortion? You're gonna enjoy this episode, we cover it all, and we bring you clarity from the front lines of the culture wars and the abortion wars so that you can stand for life at what may be the most propitious moment in American history on the issue of life. Buckle up, here we go. Can you look me in the eye? Can you look me in the eye and tell me that I shouldn't exist? That I should be dead? That I deserve to die that day. and tell me that my very survival was a mistake? A terrible toll on society? Can you look me in the eye and tell me that in my most vulnerable state, I was nothing more than a parasite? A collection of body parts. Subhuman? Worthless. In 1952, I survived multiple abortion attempts. DNC abortion. An instrument abortion. DNC abortion. abortion. A vacuum aspiration. DNC abortion. An induced abortion. Saline infusion abortion that was meant to poison and scald me to death. I am the face of choice. I am that choice. These are actual human beings who survived abortion procedures when they were still in their mother's wombs. These are the eyes, voices, and faces of choice. Choice is not merely a word. Choice is a person. Learn their stories. Powerful. Well, good evening, church. How are we doing tonight? Good. So glad to Come see you guys. <laughs> How are you guys? You look beautiful. <laughs> we are, man, we're so thrilled to be here tonight, uh, especially to, to really start engaging ourselves uh, in this discussion. Uh, with everything going on within us, we got, can we just give Seth a hand for the awesome, bold word he brought us this morning? Thank you, brother. That was awesome. Um, we're just going to open our evening together with prayer, so would you, would you join us? Father, we are thankful, God. We're so thankful for the cross of Jesus Christ, 
the death and the resurrection that gives us the, the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that is effective for eternity and beneficial for humanity. Lord, we're grateful that tonight we have the freedom due to many, many people who have given their lives, who have sacrificed for something bigger than themselves to allow us the opportunity to be here without fear tonight. We pray that we would be those who uphold that freedom and that liberty, Lord, and also, more importantly, steward it to the glory of God and to the benefit of our fellow human beings. And so, Lord, we just pray that tonight you would open our hearts and our eyes to things that maybe we haven't thought about or considered, uh, call people out, call us out into greater works of service, to be the answer that you have said that we are, to point people to Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, tonight we have a couple special guests here with us. You guys met Seth this morning and uh, just an incredible, bold voice in our, in our nation right now in this point in time in history. And we're also really blessed uh, I'm excited to have Melissa Oden with us tonight, and she has quite a testimony. And Melissa, several of us saw you up on the hill, <laughs> on Capitol Hill, testifying, uh, giving your testimony before Congress. And maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how that went, what your observations were, and how your story plays into this whole narrative. Absolutely. I'm also a Kansas City girl, so it's always fun to be in our general area. My family and I live in Gladstone. We've been here for about eight years. I grew up in Iowa. And, you know, if somebody would have told me, yeah, Iowa, right? Iowa doesn't get enough shout outs. Did you know a lot of people don't even know where Iowa is? Things that, yeah, things you learn when you travel, right? People will go, Iowa, is that where they grow potatoes? <laughs> no, folks. That's a whole other session, isn't it? But you know what? Growing up in Iowa, if somebody would have said, Pastor Josh, that someday I would go before Congress and I would speak the truth boldly about life and about my own experiences, I don't think I would have believed them because growing up, we didn't talk a lot about abortion in my family. We talked about the sanctity of life. We talked about the gift of adoption. Um, but when I was 14 years old, I found out that not only was abortion a common occurrence in our culture, but it had impacted my life. I found out at the age of 14 that I had survived, as you heard in the video, a saline infusion abortion. As I was watching that video tonight, what I kept thinking about was, I know every one of those survivors' names, not just their faces, but I know their names. I share my life with them. And that's what I want the world to see, is that abortion survivors not only exist, but we have a face and a name. That child in the womb has a face. They deserve to be called by name, just as God calls them by name from the very beginning. But when I go and I testify before Congress sharing my story of surviving that saline infusion abortion at likely 31 weeks, when I share the statistics and the stories of my fellow survivors that I'm so blessed to serve and fight for in this world, the response tends to be silence. 
There isn't a lot of questioning for people like me. And out of all the times I've testified before Congress, I've been asked one question by Democrats. One. And do you think it was even about abortion? It wasn't. It was about the death penalty. So I either get silence from that side of the aisle, or I have to sit and listen for hours to those members of Congress talk about abortion, not only being a choice, but a right. And a right that they seek to not only uphold, but expand. That was the last hearing that I was at in June. I was contacted by Senator Cruz's office, who said, Melissa, would you come testify in this hearing that's all about protecting Roe? Talk about putting your, your full armor of God on and going into battle. But you know what? I'm, I'm like Seth. If God calls me to it, I'm going to show up. And I can tell you that if Seth can do it and I can do it, you can do it too. Um, Seth, as you, as, you, as you express this, names, faces, uh, Melissa, you, you, you bring up a good point. And Seth, you hit on this a little bit during second service this morning. And that is that what is this fixation with the left to so defend what they call a right, what they demand as, as abortion? Where do you see it rooted at a, with the secular progressivism? I mean, we know it's demonic. But what are the roots, and, and how does that manifest itself, as you were talking about, another whole religion within itself, dehumanizing human beings for the sake of what? What's it rooted in? Have you guys ever wondered why the left cares so much about abortion? Have you ever wondered why they get so worked up into frenzies every time the fictional right to an abortion is threatened? Hmm, that's part of it. That's right. But... What was the primary argument and contention every time a Supreme Court vacancy opened up during the Trump administration? It's always Roe, wasn't it? You lost them, you watched them lose their ever-loving minds, which increasingly they do about every day, right? This is because secular progressivism rots the brain. You need to understand this. It's, it's built on a fantasy and it's built on false ideas, and it's built on the deification of the self. So, of course, it's doomed to fail. But in the meantime, it's going to take a lot of lives um, towards its, its doomsday to hell. The reason that they get so worked up and frenzied to defend the fictional right to abortion, the reason why when, when Trump puts forward Brett Kavanaugh or uh, Neil Gorsuch or Amy Coney Barrett, and you watch them go, oh, they're going to take away Roe. They're going to overturn it. The reason why is because for the left, abortion is not a woman's right issue. You need to understand this. This is not just one right among many. It's not about women's rights. Obviously, they murder preborn women. That's, you know, obviously can't be about their women's rights. But it's not even about women's equality in general. For the secular progressive movement, abortion is a sacrament. You need to understand this. Man is fundamentally a religious being. So at bottom, all human conflict is ultimately theological because that deals with first principles. Questions like, where does human value come from? Are we equal? Why do we think we're more valuable than animals? Where do our rights come from? Do I have greater rights than you? Why should I respect you? Why do we feel like we're more valuable than trees and animals? These are fundamentally religious questions. And so because man is fundamentally a religious animal, he, he will function like that, in, in, even though he'll deny the reality of God and the existence of God his whole life. Um, and this is a great conservative consolation, by the way. Reality always reasserts itself in the end. 
You can suppress it for a long time, but eventually it will bubble back up and it'll slap you in the face. And when it does, you would do well to take a page out of scripture and turn the other cheek, because reality is your greatest friend. And scripture actually says that Jesus is reality. He is the divine logos of the universe. He is the divine logic. He is the, he is the creator of logic, the creator of truth. He himself is truth. And so this is why scripture says eternity is written on the heart of man. We can't help but acknowledge God's truth when we see and hear it. Um, but the further you stray from those first principles, those further you stray from the God-shaped hole that you have in your heart, um, the, the more you'll actually continue functioning like a religious being. You're just gonna shove a lot of different things into that God-shaped hole. But you're still pursuing peace, right? You're still pursuing eternal life. You're still pursuing the things that we're told have already been secured for us at Calvary. So you need to understand this. Abortion is a sacrament. Why do I say that? Peter Kraft, the Catholic philosopher, put this better when I ever could, when he said that abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words. This is my body. But with the opposite blasphemous meaning. So you see, Christ says, this is my body broken for you, taken, eat in remembrance of me. Ironically, or not so ironically, the culture of death says the same words. This is my body. <laughs> and I can kill whatever's inside of my body because a God gets to decide who lives and who dies. So when you're not in the kingdom of God and you have not been regenerated and you have not been reborn, right, to use the birth analogy, then your soul will be being preyed upon by demons. We understand that Yahweh means one God. So if there is one God, that means that all other little g gods are actually not deities, are they? They're what scripture calls Satan masquerading as an angel of light or Satan masquerading as some little bronze dude, right? That he's happy to take your worship towards. But you see, Satan doesn't care the name of the God that you sacrifice your children to. Do you think Satan cares what you call him? No, if there's only one other God, then anything that isn't worship of Yahweh makes Satan's day. He's pumped. Just don't worship Yahweh. He doesn't care what you call him. So was Molech actually a bronze statue with a little dude? No, it was Satan, <laughs> right? So we sacrifice our children on the pagan idols and altars of self, of money, of education, of career well-being, or even of family. But Satan's happy to accept the sacrifice of those children. He will never be satiated, and his appetite for human blood will never be satisfied. So a sacrament represents kind of everything you believe, who you worship, and who you serve. So abortion is a representation of really the core tenets of secular progressivism. Because at bottom, secular progressivism believes that human nature is infinitely malleable. Here's what I mean by this. We as Christians believe human nature is fixed, right? It means that um, we all suck, and we're always all going to suck, and it's just a matter of degree of how much we suck. That's what we mean as Christians when we say human nature is fixed, right? We're, we're not moving into a progressive utopia and Dr. Fauci will lead the way with his science banner held high. No, no, no. You know, to quote Barack Obama, the arc of the moral universe is not long, and we are not bending towards justice, as he said. We're bending towards human depravity. The, this time frame and stage of human history that we live in is incredibly unique. And if you're a student of history, 
you'll know this. But unfortunately, too many Americans aren't, so we take our liberties here for granted. You need to understand, your children, your grandchildren need to understand that America is the exception. The last 250 years are the exception. The norm is man ruling over man and killing him if he needs to, to get what he wants. That's, that's the norm for, for human civilization. And so in, in America, abortion is just sort of another chapter in, in the long book of history of uh, well, man killing other people to get what they want, to pursue what they want. So abortion is actually a substitute savior. It's actually a replacement for eternal life. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 15 that says that the last enemy to be defeated is death. So because eternity is written on the heart of man, guess what? The left actually tries to pursue that as well. They want to defeat death as well. They want to live forever. Now, man is an eternal being. It just determines where you're going to spend that eternity, <laughs> either burning or in heaven. But because the left doesn't believe in a, in a God who died on the cross for their sins, who entered human history as a fetus to redeem mankind from their sins, because the left doesn't believe that, they still are pursuing eternal life. They're still pursuing peace. They also do it through the shedding of blood. So rather than accepting the broken body and shed blood of Christ for eternal life, they demand that we break the bodies and shed the blood of babies for eternal life. So what do I mean by this? I know this sounds strange if you've never thought about abortion as a sacrament before. But in abortion, we kill babies to get their stem cells. It's called embryonic stem cell research. Why? So we're, we're convinced that we can solve diseases. So you're killing them to improve or extend your own life. And this is nothing new. Pagan societies have always sacrificed humans, children, and infants to pagan gods because they believed that they would receive a blessing in return for the sacrifice of a human. <laughs> it's the same thing. Satan doesn't care the name of the idol that you're giving the children to. And I told you this morning that recently scientists are, are pushing to drop the 14-day limit on growing babies artificially in petri dishes so that they can experiment with gene editing. Well, that kills the baby. But if we can, if we can edit their genes and get rid of diseases, and just kill a bunch of babies to test it till we get it right, then we can do it on ourselves so we can live forever, right? With fetal tissue harvesting or fetal tissue research, you kill the baby to get their organs to sell on the black market or to experiment to try to solve staph infections and create vaccines. Why? So we can extend our own lives. <laughs> it's all the same thing, right? And this right goes back to the very line, the very beginning in Genesis 3, when the serpent tells Adam and Eve, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, of that apple, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods. Well, that's a fascinating lie, right? Because a god gets to live forever and a god also gets to decide who lives and who dies. And what happens in abortion? We decide who lives and who dies and we're attempting to kill babies as a replacement for eternal life to improve or extend our own lives because we've rejected the shed blood of the eternal embryo who entered human history as a in a womb to redeem mankind from their sins. So from a spiritual landscape, that's what you need to understand about abortion. That's why the left cares so much about it, because it's a sacrament. It's a core tenet of their religion. So when they say, oh, the Christians are trying to create a theocracy in America, let me tell you, there's only one theocracy in America right now, and it's called secular progressivism, which is an alternative religion. And at the center of that religion and that sacrament is the God of self. And, and not only that we're killing, right, we're, we're, we're justifying the killing of human beings uh, to scientifically try to find ways to live longer, but the, one of the main arguments that people use in justifying their own decision for abortion always comes back to the convenience of how it will affect them, right? How will this affect me financially? How will this affect my dreams, my passions, my pursuits? Is it going to be an inconvenience to me to have a baby or to go through this pregnancy? And I thought this was reflected in, and, and I'm going to pick on, 
uh, Simone Biles, not, be, not because I'm trying to pick on her, but because she uh, posted something that was, uh, it's her own fault. Uh, let's see. So she, she posted this, give me an unpopular opinion, and someone said abortion is wrong. And Simone Biles, you guys know who she is, I think. She only participated in one or two of her events here at the Olympics. Um, that's a whole other issue. But she posted this about this statement, abortion is wrong. She said, I already know this is going to start the biggest argument, but I may even lose followers, but. So she think, she's thinking she's being very brave right now. Uh, I'm very much pro-choice. Your body, your choice. Also, for everyone going to say, just put it up for adoption, it. Okay, so taking away that personhood, as, as Seth taught us this morning. It's not that easy, and coming from someone, listen, who is in the foster care system, trust me, foster care system is broken, and it's tough, especially on the kids and young adults who, who age out, and adoption is expensive, I'm just saying, and don't even come at me if you couldn't keep a mask on your face or refuse to wear one. <laughs> Glad to tie that context in there. Um, the, the, but the circular reasoning here is so shallow um, you've said it earlier in our personal conversation, no one knows how to critically think deeper about the issue of abortion. And here she is basically making the argument that, you know, here's a, here's a girl who is obviously probably born into adversity, overcame some very difficult obstacles uh, in her own life to achieve the success and notability and notoriety and wealth that not many people in this world ever get to experience in their entire life. And she is basically arguing that it would have been better if someone killed me to save my mom or myself from the inconvenience or difficulty of, of living in, this, in the system. And the fact is, we don't. God is the one who gets to choose. We just have the responsibility to give the opportunity for people to live and experience life. And so this is frustrating, but... Where is, it, where is it rooted? Where is it coming from? And ex let's explain, because this is a growing train of thought among athletes and entertainers, and it's going into the whole next generation, that that's, just, that's as deep as it gets, and it's so full of holes. But let's talk about those holes that are coming out. I'll start. I mean, I, Seth has a lot to say, as you could imagine. I... <laughs> <laughs> Seth and I are planning to do some work together. We think this is a really fun combo, right? I mean, how do you refute someone who survived an abortion and someone who is well-versed in apologetics? It just doesn't really get any better than this. But, you know, what I can tell you is, and some of you, if you follow me on social media, you'll saw that I posted this last week. My response to Simone is very similar to what I've even said to members of Congress, and that is this. It is such an incredibly privileged stance to take to support a woman's right to choose when you yourself have been born. It is a ridiculous argument, in my opinion. As a woman who survived an abortion, it is not a right. It is not a choice. It is not health care. It was meant to end my life. It was meant to end the lives of my friends and my survivor population. It's ending the lives of little girls in the womb today. That is not a right. And so that was my response to Simone was, you know what, what an incredibly privileged thing to say. Because when it's not your body that is having that choice, right, put upon it, 
So it's from a point of privilege that you were talking about. And as we all know, there is no other social justice issue in our country where people would look at it and say, you know what, ending the life of another human being is the right thing to do, except if you adhere to secular progressivism, right? Then, then ending the life of someone who is inconvenient, ill, all of those things, and that suddenly is a solution. But in the grand scheme of things, none of us would look upon another person's life and say, they're gonna suffer, we might as well end their life right now. You know, there's a big difference between getting rid of a problem and finding a solution. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Simone Biles, who's just sort of a stand-in for what we call born privilege in America today. She's just representing what every pro-choicer believes. I'm very glad that I didn't have my limbs ripped off my body. But sometimes growing up as an infant in the foster care system's tough, so that's why I support abortion. I mean, who's ever heard someone defend abortion because of the negative circumstances that children might be born into? Oh yeah, it's very popular. So she's just sort of a, a caricature for this very popular position in the culture today. Okay, is the foster care system screwed up? Yes, I know people who foster. I know lots of people who have fostered or are fostering, and I know lots of people who have adopted as well. I've heard the horror stories behind all that. By the way, if the church had been involved in the public square from the very beginning and making financial and personal sacrifices to save all unwanted children, we wouldn't be in the debacle that we're in. Let me just say that. Because the early church diversified itself through saving babies who were abandoned on the side of the road. Because in that period of Rome, it was very popular to, and socially acceptable to abandon infants if they were the wrong gender, if they had some malformity. You wanna know who is going around streets and picking up those babies and raising them as their own? The early church! So, I mean, adoption is at the very genesis of the early church and it's also at the very heart of the gospel itself. We ourselves have been adopted by God. Uh, who better to evidence and retell the story of the gospel than the very people who have been adopted by the creator of the universe through the blood shed by Christ on the cross. Okay, so there are problems, but there's a difference between getting rid of a problem and finding a solution. For Simone Biles, her response to a flawed foster care system is to get rid of the problem or the future problems that that child might encounter in the system. For example, if my wife has a headache, I could decapitate her and she will no longer have a headache. I have gotten rid of the problem. Have I found a solution? No, I haven't, and I'll be charged with first-degree homicide, and rightly so, right? There would be a better solution to getting rid of the headache than murdering the person with the headache. Similarly, there are better solutions to the flawed foster care system than murdering pre-born human beings because you and your enlightened elitist state have foreseen, apparently, have foreseen into the future that the circumstances of that child will be bad enough such that they would not have wanted to live in the first place. Can you think of something more pompous than that? Oh my gosh, I wasn't aborted or killed by my parents and I overcame difficult circumstances, so because I love you so much and I'm so dang compassionate and gracious, I just wanna kill all babies conceived in inconvenient circumstances because they might have a difficult life moving forward. Oh my gosh. So Simone Biles says, I can overcome difficulties and thrive in this life but other children can't, so we need to kill them. That's not, solve, that's not 
um, finding a solution, that's eliminating a problem. And when that problem is an image bearer of God with human rights, we're in deep doo-doo. I want to I talk for a minute about, uh, let's say, let's call it maybe the precursor um, or the, 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 something that feeds even, even this abortion and this worship of self. And that is this, the incredibly secular, secularized uh, culture that we live in, um, that is in that is that is totally saturated with this idea that that sex is is this is this God and this pathway to expression and to pleasure and without consequences. Um, so much of this of this generation, and, and it's always been an issue. I mean, with with humanity in general, but is um, is being fed this lie that abortion is just this convenient. Uh, out for your sexual escapades uh, and no responsibility without, without ever seeing the, what's behind the curtain of that, what the pain that lies in, in the back end of that. Um, I'd love to get you guys' thoughts on, you know, how do we engage our, our youth, our, our college students to see sexuality different and to realize that there are that the consequences of this is not just abortion can be an easy out, but there are real things at stake here in regards. I mean, what's your observations on the, 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 the secularization of this culture in that way? So many places to start. I mean, our, our, our country and our next generation are not grounded in what, anything resembling what we would today call natural law or natural rights, uh, which means that if there's a natural lawgiver, okay, God himself, and there's natural rights, then that also means that there's certain duties and responsibilities that come along with those rights. All right, this is sort of the natural law tradition. So for example, if um, I have a natural right to life, you have a duty to not kill me. Do you see? Duties are the flip side of rights. And for a healthy, functioning civilization, you have to have both of those, right? So, for example, Melissa and I would say that we believe that children have a right to their mother and father. They have a, right, they have a natural right to be raised by the two human beings responsible for their existence uh, within the confines of marriage. And there's a reason why civilizations and countries have supported the conjugal view of marriage for millennia, regardless of their religious underpinnings. Did you know this? I mean, literally every human society, basically, ever, even if they were doing crazy sex acts on sex, sexual escapades on the side, never believed marriage to be anything but the permanent, exclusive, complementary union of two sexes, of the opposite sex. Every society's always believed that, even if, even if the husbands were being total degenerates. That view of marriage was still the enshrined view of marriage in the society and in the civilization, because sort of of this, this recognition of self-evident truths. Um, that the two individuals best situated to raise children are the two individuals responsible for those ch that child's existence. I mean, it, there's a reason why <laughs> we as parents care about which baby we take home from the hospital. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like, huh, I'll take that one. <laughs> well, what, am I, well, what am I saying? I'm saying that parents have a natural right to their child. We care about what baby we take home from the hospital. Well, guess what? That right flows both ways. The child also has a natural claim to the two individuals responsible for their existence. Now, of course, there are extenuating circumstances. There's social breakdown. There's sexual and family breakdown. And there are circumstances, we would all agree, 
where one or both of the biological parents are not the best situated to raise that child, and the child needs to be removed from the home for their own good and safety. Amen. I'm speaking very generally. Ideally, we want those parents raising their own children because that's how society flourishes. That's how healthy countries and civilizations progress. And that's been the historical view of marriage for millennia until the sexual revolution. And then that just sped up more and more and more and more and more until Obergefell, the decision, like Roe, that found a fictional right to something that didn't really exist in the Constitution. So there are lots of consequences to this because law is a teacher. Um, as Aristotle once said, statecraft is soulcraft. So meaning that government through its laws and policies um, present which type of behaviors are acceptable and not acceptable in a civilized society. And it enshrines a certain vision of the good life and what human flourishing looks like. Um, so for example, did divorces increase or decrease after no-fault divorce laws? They increased, okay, that is one of many examples. But when people say, well, politics is downstream from culture, so don't contend politically, just contend in the culture wars. No, 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 no. Politics and culture is actually a two-way street. See what I mean? Oh, and did we see this in the last year and a half with, I don't know, crazy radical Democrats who defunded the police and jailbroke criminals as long as they were singing the hymnal book of the religion of secular progressivism when they said, America sucks, burn it down. Did we get more or less crime? More, because we incentivized it and we passed laws saying it's not that big of a deal. I mean, this is kind of duh, right? You should get this. So statecraft is soulcraft. Government through its laws and policies prescribe which type of behaviors are acceptable and not acceptable in a civilized society, and then you will either get more or less of those behaviors. So when the, the country and the civilization said, eh, what is marriage? We can't really even know. Marriage is not a, a comprehensive, permanent, conjugal, exclusive union between complementary sexes for the good of society and the rearing of children. No, that's not what marriage is. Marriage is just an intense emotional union. It's just an intense emotional union. It's if you just love someone, it can be a marriage. Which, of course, begs the question, well, why can't a marriage be a throuple then? What if they have an intense emotional union between three individuals? Why, you've just removed anything that would enable us to say marriage is just two people. So the breakdown of this for society, for the unborn, I mean, the more our country has become sexualized, the more that there have become abortions. And at root, it's actually the same worldview, and it all stems from relativism. Relativism, which says there is no objective truth, and you are the arbiter of truth. Remember Pilate to Christ? What is truth? Well, actually, the secular progressive movement already has an answer to that. I am. I determine what is true and what is not. If it feels good, do it, and it's just my truth. I'm just speaking my truth. Well, what if my truth says your truth is a lie? Is it still true? I mean, obviously, this is contradictory, right? But it's actually the same worldview. It all stems from relativism. The argument for the breakdown of marriage was what I want, what feels good now. Ah, give me immediate pleasure. What's abortion? Self, immediate pleasure, immediate gratification. It's almost like it's an alternative religion that deifies the self over everything else. Yes, wake up. Wow. Um, so switching gears uh, a little bit, uh, we've seen an increase in this uh, in this opposition to those who stand up and speak in life, for life, uh, especially even from a political and a national standpoint. Um, what are some of the things you're seeing that are happening kind of right on the front page of the news that we should be thinking about and concerned about and proactive about? I mean, what, what, what's happening these days in regards to uh, the progress of the pro-life movement and abortion in this country? What are you seeing in some of the headlines? 
Yeah, I'll get to that, but I'll actually, I'll punt this really quick to Melissa because their organization, Abortion Survivors Network, which she's the founder and president of, and which I'm on the board of, by the way, phenomenal organization, um, does a lot of work on this standpoint, uh, placing moral premises in the law, working on legislation that forces the country and legislators to recognize the humanity of the abortion survivor. I mean, there was a bill that um, Ben Sass um, authored back in 2019 that they've shot down, I don't even know how many, is it a dozen or more now, or is it? Well, when it comes to born alive legislation, it's been um, blocked by Pelosi over 80 times now. Yeah, yeah that's right. So I'll, I'll, I'll get to it something else, but I'll punt this to Melissa because this is a very important strategy politically regarding what we call Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Um, and because that deals with the population that Melissa deals with, why don't you talk a little bit about that, your efforts there, and, and why it's so important? Yeah, I think it's important that we are educated so we know how to look at the headlines and also know how to engage. So for those of you who aren't aware, Born Alive legislation gets brought up quite frequently in the legislature. So it, it happens at the state level, it happens in the federal level. Uh, back in 2019, that's when we saw New York light up pink because they expanded abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. And if you're not well versed in this, you might have been sitting back thinking, did that really do what I think it did? Because our culture out there would say it didn't make any difference, right? It's just, you know, it's just something we did. We don't really do this. Well, then why did you have to do it, right? Why did we have to pass a law if this wasn't a thing? Because they wanted to make sure it remained a thing. They were, they were reading into what was going to happen with the Supreme Court and knew that the chances were getting better and better that a case would go before the Supreme Court that would start to roll back Roe versus Wade. So this is what it was about in New York, in Vermont, um, in so many other states. Massachusetts has continued to battle this. Um, don't even get me started about the, the governor of North Carolina and his comments on infanticide, right? I mean, folks, when you hear this, oh yeah, Virginia, sorry, North Carolina is also on my brain though because we've got problems there too. Um, but Virginia was where their governor was making comments about how a child surviving an abortion like me would be laid aside. Well, arguments, conversations were taking place about what would happen to that child. I say argument because I know what that looks like because that's what happened to me. I was not immediately provided medical care 44 years ago when I survived that saline infusion abortion. I was laid aside while they had arguments about whether I would be provided medical care. It's kind of hard to think about that when you see me today, right? I'm a wife, I'm a mother. That's my oldest daughter over there in the pink dress. My children live knowing that they never would have existed if that abortion would have succeeded in ending my life. Then they have to live with knowing that I also had to have a fight to be provided medical care. This is a very real thing. So when we put it in context, born alive legislation is very, very important. Why? Because people like me are still being brought into this world today through failed abortions. We've now connected with 399 other abortion survivors from 17 different countries. Our youngest survivor is one. 
we have a couple of little one-year-old boys. One survived both chemical abortion pills, and the other little boy was born at 25 weeks in 2020. Why was he born at 25 weeks? Because his mom, who was suffering with a disability, was coerced into having an abortion by a group of professionals. She was in so much pain in the middle of this abortion that she stopped. And do you know what the abortionist said to her? If you don't finish this abortion, you're gonna pay me anyway. And if I find out that you were further along than the 20 weeks that I thought you were, you're gonna owe me more money. Do you think he helped her? He didn't. I've actually protested outside of his clinic before, so I know exactly who he is. But he did nothing to help her. She found people in the community who would help her, but they couldn't stop her labor. And God bless that little boy was born at 25 weeks, and he's still alive today. But you wouldn't know that, would you? You wouldn't know that if you scanned the headlines and you looked into our culture, because they tell you that people like me don't exist. And if there are some of us, then there must be like one of you. And it stopped happening 44 years ago. Why do they think it stopped 44 years ago? Because they found much more effective ways to make sure that people like me would be killed through an abortion procedure. But they also thought that we wouldn't be thinking through the lies that are told through our culture time and time again. So what I can tell you is that Born Alive legislation needs to be passed at the federal level. Your legislators need to hear from you, and we can talk about this before we leave tonight. But even as close by as South Dakota, I was testifying um, virtually for some legislation this year. They were trying to argue and say, you know what, we have a 14-week abortion ban here in South Dakota. We don't need to have a Born Alive bill, except if you start thinking through some of the things that are happening. Their hospital was called on the carpet in the middle of this meeting and someone said, what about induction abortion? And I could see that person with the hospital start to recoil a little bit. They didn't wanna talk about it. What's an induction abortion? It's inducing labor with the intent of that child not surviving the labor or being left to die afterwards. Otherwise known as what, folks? Abortion. We passed that Born Alive bill in South Dakota because they didn't get away with that. But that's why it's so important that you're here tonight. It's so important that you are getting educated and you start to get engaged because we can't just trust the headline or what we're hearing in our culture. We have to be watching, listening, and asking questions. So thank you for letting me answer that. Yeah, and, and this, you need to understand how much the left cares about defending abortion. You see, if you can liberate yourself even from human nature by claiming that not all humans get human rights and it's not our human nature that grounds our rights, it's something else that the elite class gets to determine. So there's some things as human persons and some things as human non-persons. <laughs> if you can liberate yourself and free yourself even from the constraints of human nature and redefine victim classes and human nature to justify your bigotry, then there is no end to your political project. And that's always been the point, folks, to entirely upend society and remake it in their own image. And the abortion issue is actually the very tool that they use to do that. Because if you can justify the killing of an innocent human being 
for no reason other than they're unwanted. There is nothing else that you cannot justify. And if you can numb the mind of the American public, or far from numbing it, get them to celebrate it. Get them to celebrate the limb dismemberment of human beings up through point of birth and day of delivery. And they'll champion that and celebrate that. There's nothing else that you can't inoculate the society with supporting, championing, and getting behind. So you need to understand that. The reason why the Democrats hate the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Acts, which have not passed at the federal level, thanks to bigots like Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and many others, and they are bigots, okay? Because what's bigotry? Discrimination against someone else for being different, especially if it's immutable characteristics, right? Things you have no control over. So isn't bigotry more nasty if I'm judging you based off of something you can't control? Well, the unborn can't control their location, their dependency, and their size. So yes, pro-choice does equal bigotry, just so you don't think I'm just making nasty political jabs. I'm actually speaking very clearly. So the bigots on the Democratic side in the Senate and the, and, or in the Congress writ large, they have opposed and vetoed and blocked Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Acts. Why? Do you think that they actually support killing infants after they're born? No, actually, I don't think so. And I think that actually makes it all the more nastier. Let me explain. Nancy Pelosi's talked about how she has six or seven children. She has lots of grandchildren. She's talked about how she loves being a mother and how grateful she is. And she actually used that line recently to transition into saying, therefore, I think I have some standing on this issue, meaning abortion. It's kind of sick. <laughs> kind of like Simone Biles. <laughs> I have my children, right? Abortion's on thee, but not on me. Abortion's for thee, but not for me. And that's sort of just a tenet of elitism. But the reason they continue to block this bill and these legislation is not because they want infants who are outside of the womb because they survived a botched abortion to have their head chopped off. No, 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 no. It's because they know the danger of planting moral premises in the law. Here's what I mean by this. If you can plant the moral premise in the law, this is why politics is so important, right? If you can plant the premise in the law that the baby directly outside of the vaginal canal, I mean, barely out of the birth canal, is a full person with full personhood rights guaranteed by our founding documents, or recognized by our founding documents as natural. Yeah, I see you guys driving. If, if you can plant that moral premise in the law, then it becomes intellectually untenable to argue that the child halfway out of the birth canal, right, is not a person. Huh? Partial birth abortions? which a couple months ago, Xavier Becerra, the director of HHS, said that, that um, we already, what did he say? He said we don't have, that those don't happen and that we don't have um, uh, bans against partial birth abortion. That's what he said. Yes, we do have a partial birth abortion ban, Mr. Becerra, and you voted against it when you were in the House, you bigot. <laughs> you can go to Xavier Becerra's voting record. When he was in the House of Representatives, he voted against the partial birth abortion ban. And now that he's the director of HHS, he was testifying to... Um, Mitt Romney, I think, who, who, who had the shining, highest shining moment in his political career, which is to say a lot, recently, when he actually grilled Xavier Becerra by saying, Mr. Becerra, when you were in the House, you voted against partial birth abortion bans. What's wrong with you, you sicko? Now, I'm paraphrasing, but it was a shining moment for Mitt Romney, one of the greatest squishes and enemies of the pre-born and the GOP. So Becerra votes against this and now says that we don't have laws against that type of procedure. What type of procedure? Partial birth abortion, where you pull a baby out by its legs, force, in a forced delivery, 
but you leave the, sh the shoulder blades in the head in the vaginal canal. And then you stick scissors and you jam them into the back of the neck to create a, a cavity. And then you stuck, stick a vacuum suction catheter machine and you suck the brains out. And this, why? So they can still call it an abortion. Because when the baby's all the way delivered, now legally it's called infanticide. Okay. If you grant personhood and full dignity and equality and value to the abortion survivor, there's no way you could suggest that that same baby with half its body, <laughs> you see what I mean? Half its body out of the birth canal and half of the body in the birth canal is not a person, even though Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the tons of Democrats have voted against partial birth abortion bans. And then if you acknowledge the humanity and personhood and rights of the partially delivered child, <laughs> it's also intellectually untenable to argue that right before mom starts pushing, <laughs> that it's not a person with rights. Do you see? So they're willing to sacrifice infants on the altar of abortion access because they're very afraid that if Republicans succeed in guaranteeing legal protections and legal penalties to abortionists who allow abortion survivors to die, that it will be very easy to pull off the political strategy of granting personhood to the child at earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier stages. So Democrats in Congress folks don't think that abortion survivors should actually be killed or that they should kill their own or that they don't have value. They do think it's wrong, but they don't care enough because why? Because abortion is a sacrament and we will do whatever we can to protect that fictional right even if it means sacrificing infants on the altar of abortion access. And some legislators and political pundits on the left have actually admitted this. Things like, oh, if they succeed in this legislation, that's gonna lead to making other types of abortion procedures illegal. Exactly, you know, but you don't care enough to protect people like Melissa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're actually called the dreaded complication of abortion, if you've never heard that before. Abortion survivors were termed that back in the late 70s. Um, there was a, a series actually called the Dreaded Complication Series in the Philadelphia Inquirer that came out in 1981. It was a watershed article. They uh, were actually uh, nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Um, it's an incredible article. I would really, really encourage people. It's not an easy read because you will come face to face with stories like mine with um, sadly many different outcomes, um, but they got the term from an abortionist who made it clear that this is who we are. A live baby after an abortion is a dreaded complication, something you are seeking to avoid. And then what would you do with a child like me when we come into this world? Not only attempt to snuff out our life, but then try to keep us quiet, right? Keep us locked in secrets and shame and our culture sh just heaps shame after shame on my population. That is part of the work that I do, is I not only heal abortion survivors and families because we wanna break that cycle and we wanna set entirely, entire families free, but we're also educating survivors about how to contact their legislator, how to speak publicly, what does it mean to advocate. We just had six survivors speak publicly for the first time in Texas. They went through not only our healing program, but they went through a speaking um, series. You might know a few things about that speaker's program. They met one-on-one -on -one with a speaking coach. Some of them did. This is what the left never wanted to see happen. 
was survivors to know their story, be healed, find a community of people just like them, and then have the skills and the empowerment to do something with it. So you are gonna see more and more survivors coming forward, speaking truth in this culture because they know that they have a place now that they can come to, to be welcome and to fight together. And because abortion survivors are a walking contradiction, and so they're the bane of the pro-abortion left. Nothing causes Cecile Richards, the former president of Planned Parenthood, or Nancy Pelosi, or Chuck Schumer, or Kamala Harris, or Joe Biden to have nightmares more than abortion survivors. Uh, Melissa once put this beautifully. She said, how could the act that nearly took my life fundamentally be, or uh, simultaneously. simultaneously be my fundamental right to exercise? So abortion survivors are walking contradictions. I mean, I, I'm convinced that Chuck Schumer wakes up and sweats at night. Like, oh my gosh, Melissa was questioning me again in the Senate. I mean, I'm convinced of this. These people are deathly afraid of abortion survivors because they're a walking contradiction. None of them will look abortion survivors in the face and, and say, you don't matter. You weren't supposed to survive. You suck. I wish you were dead. They would never say that. But that's what their belief entails. So listen, if reproductive justice is such a great thing, right, reproductive health care, if these are such great things, and it's a human right, what, what do they say? Well, abortion is a human right. It's a women's right. Okay, so they're saying that this is a natural right. This is, this is very funny, by the way. Whenever uh, people say that abortion is a natural right, you have to be aware of natural law to understand this, but what they're saying is that that right comes in virtue of being human. Does that make sense? So a natural right is a right that springs from our humanity. And so that's why certain animals don't have a right to life or property like we do. There's something about being human. So if abortion is a natural right, then the abortion advocate had that right from the moment she began to exist, mm -hmm. the moment of conception. So Hadley Arcus, the brilliant natural law thinker and um, founder of the James Wilson Institute for Natural Rights, says, we are left with an amusing paradox. <laughs> According to the logic of abortion advocates, unborn women don't have a right to life, but they do have a right to an abortion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Huh? Come again? And I have well, it's ridiculous, right? Because how could human rights exist where the right to life doesn't? So if reproductive justice and this right to abortion is such a great thing, what follows from that? Failure to procure said reproductive health care would be tragic and sad and a bummer. Well, what is, what is said failure to procure reproductive justice and health care? A human being, <laughs> a baby that wasn't killed. That's the failure to pro procure said reproductive health care. So the, the natural progression of these pro-choice ideas is that, why are you alive, dang it? You call into question my entire worldview, exactly and anyone who compromises the fictional right to abortion will be treated as a heretic of the religion of secular progressivism and thrown into their utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Somebody put hashtag Bane on my social media today when I said <laughs> I was gonna be here with you. The Bane of the abortion right. industry is what Seth had nicknamed us years ago and actually my survivors love that. <laughs> Good. Wear it like a badge of honor.
Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this special conversation with Pastor Josh Blevins and Melissa Odin. If this type of conversations and episode and podcast is encouraging and helpful to you, would you consider becoming a patron of the show? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. Check out our nine different tiers there and you get fun perks and rewards as a thank you for supporting the show. This helps us continue to produce the show, increase the number of episodes, the types of guests that we have on, where we're able to go and film content and begin creating conversational content on the streets where we apply these ideas in conversations with normal Americans who probably don't think as deeply about this issue as you do in order to shift the dial culturally, change minds, change hearts, save lives, and push us out into a viral friendly type of content on YouTube so that people can examine these ideas in conversations that they have questions about but haven't thought deeply about. So thank you so much. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and we'll be right back with a whole lot more. <laughs> Um, a couple things come to my, my mind on this area of conversation. Uh, number one, let's poke some holes in this argument that really allures to Christians who are maybe ignorant, but they, they do want to be compassionate and loving, and, but they're ignorant at the same time of, well, if we, if, we de if we criminalize abortion, if we get rid of it, well, there's going to the people who want abortions are still going to want abortions, and they're going to obtain it illegally, and it's going to be unsafe, and it's going to cause more, more damage and more, more, more danger to the mothers. Um, obviously, if we applied that to, to anything else, we would be in a, in, a, in a heap of trouble as to what we, how we adjust our legal system and criminalize certain things and justify it. But where, where is this coming from? We need to keep abortions legal because if we make it illegal, women will be forced into dangerous back alley abortion centers and they're going to die by the thousands like they did before Roe. Do you want their blood on your hands, you Christian bigot? That's the argument, right? Ever heard that? So it's used to make you look like some type of moral monster who wants pregnant women bleeding out in back alleys through a coat hanger stuck in their uterus. That, that, that is what they want you to envision and they want you to look like some type of moral monster. Okay, firstly... Um, in his book, Aborting America, um, oh, I just blinked on his name. Um, oh. oh, I just blinked on his name, I'm sorry. He, anyways, he was the co-founder of NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League. It'll come to me later. And um, he had a conversion to the pro-life movement, uh, Bernard Nathanson, and to Christianity. He became a Christian um, and worked to undo um, Roe versus Wade. He admitted in his book, Aborting America, that when he was working with um, these degenerates like Larry Later and Cyril Means and others in the early 70s and late 60s to legalize abortion at the federal level, when he became pro-life, he later admitted in his book that they invented figures out of, I mean, they just pulled them out of their butts. I mean, they just invented these numbers out of thin air um, about how many women had died and were dying from illegal abortions in America. Why? He said, well, it was a convenient figure towards our political ends. Because if we could create hysteria and fear in the American populace um, towards uh, keeping state-level pro-life legislation in place because women were dying and seeking it illegally, we could get them to support um, pro-abortion laws. And he says in his book, Aborting America, Bernard Nathanson said, on, I, knew, I knew at the time it was they were total fictional numbers. In, in reality, we knew it was only in the hundreds, um, but we, we threw out figures like 10,000. Um, to accomplish our goals. 
So from a purely statistical standpoint, I just want you to understand that when people say, women were dying from the thousands before Roe, do you want to go back to that pro-lifer? Just know that that's not true at all, okay? Um, and when Leanna Wen, who took over for Cecile Richards as president of Planned Parenthood, ironically, she was only there for nine months, so she was a late-term abortion, and they got rid of her because she wasn't a political hack enough. I'm not kidding, she actually wasn't political enough, and that's why they fired her. They didn't like that she was just trying to talk about abortion as healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. They wanted that political activism side, so they performed a late-term abortion on Leanna Wen. But she made a statement while president of Planned Parenthood that uh, thousands and thousands of women had died before Roe. You want to know who gave them, who gave her four Pinocchios? The Washington Post. Okay, so yeah, when the most left-wing mainstream news outlet is calling the president of Planned Parenthood a big fat liar, uh, you know that that lie's been thoroughly debunked. Okay, but what's wrong with the moral premises and undergirding ideas of this argument? It, this is tantamount to saying that because some people die trying to kill others, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. Can you imagine placing that sort of moral law in any other context? Let's try school shootings. Oh my gosh, you Democrats who hate gun violence, you know these depraved and depressed young individuals are resorting to gun violence largely thanks to your policies because you put them in their house for a year and a half and told them they were gonna die from COVID at 18 years old or 15 years old and they couldn't go to high school. So now they're resorting to gun violence and they're walking into the newly opened schools and they're firing on their peers. So listen, some of the school security are actually shooting these young men to protect their classmates because he's the one open firing. Oh my gosh, some school shooters are getting harmed or killed in the process of trying to kill others. We need to legalize school shootings. Oh, you don't get that because you're not woke. Okay, see, see we, we have to do it because I am so dang compassionate and I care about the lives of these school shooters so much that I just don't want them getting harmed or killed by a security officer who's sh only shooting them because he's opening firing on his classmates. And so some people are dying or, get, or getting harmed while trying to kill others. So the solution is to legalize school shootings. Yeah, try that thought experiment on a radical anti-gun Democrat, see how it goes over, right? But they accept that same moral premise on abortion because some people die, pregnant mothers, trying to kill others, their own unborn offspring, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. The solution is not to encourage that, the solution is not to kill your child. So it's also a deeply anti-woman, anti-feminist perspective because what's the assumption they're operating off of? Women are so inherently weak that even when abortion's made illegal, they're still going to break the law, endanger their own body in doing so, all to get that abortion. That's just how inherently weak women are. They don't have the inward strength of soul to embrace motherhood for the child that they're already a mother to. And so, you know, Thousands of women will just get illegal abortions anyways. Wow, pro-choicer. For a feminist, you have a pretty low view of women. I have a higher view of women that when abortion's made illegal, most women won't choose abortion and they will embrace motherhood for the child that they're already a mother to. It's almost like the pro-abortion movement welcomes sexism in their ranks. Shocker. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Can I soften that a little? All right, when Pastor Josh had to call me and we were talking about tonight, I'm like, listen, Seth's gonna be there to speak and you know him really well, you don't need to worry about me, all right? Like, he's the first pastor to never have to worry about me, which is great. 
I want to put this in a slightly different context, one that most people don't have the opportunity to see. And that is through the eyes of a survivor who survived a coat hanger abortion. Did you ever stop to think that those small number of illegal or back alley abortions, those coat hanger abortions, did you ever stop to think that as they're talking about women, of course there was also a child very much involved in that. Yes, if the woman died, the child died. But in many of those circumstances, many more I would suspect, Seth, than the, num the number of women who died in those attempts, I would say we had many more children survive those type of attempts because I am hearing from them on a regular basis. One of the most powerful comments that came from one of those survivors, and she actually is one of the six who spoke publicly just recently. If you follow us on social media, you'll start to hear more of her story. But she said to me once, she said, you know, Melissa, I just need to apologize to you. I am one of the reasons why you were poisoned and scalded in the womb. And I was saying, what? Wait a minute. We're both survivors. We just survived different types of abortion attempts. And she said, I am responsible because my mom tried to end my life with a coat hanger before abortion was made legal. Where do you think she took on that responsibility from? Our culture. When they throw out the coat hanger symbol and say, we're not ever going to go back to this place. What kind of message are they saying to survivors like Michelle? You're responsible for what we have going on in here. And because of people like you, we need to make sure abortion is legal. That's something you wouldn't think about, is it? I would say the number of survivors that we serve through our network has predominantly more people who survived illegal abortions and attempts before abortion was even legalized than still today. But the CDC themselves were admitting way back in the 70s that they were estimating 400 to 500 live births from legal abortions. So then wrap your head around the number of children who survived illegal attempts or attempts at home. Behind all of that masterful language, there is always a child. So uh, in this same line, uh, I had a, a couple other questions that have come up through text messages and such uh, about this evening. The other, the other things that appeal through ignorance but emotion well, the, the baby's going to be born with Down syndrome. The baby's going to come out and live for 15 minutes and probably not survive. You know, why wouldn't we just grant them, grant them the mercy? Or, you know, that, that, that mother's life is, is really threatened by that potential of that baby coming out. And, and there's, uh, there's some big issues there about a mother's safety and health and, and the threat that that baby uh, is to the mother. Where do these, these two elements come into the come into play? Nearly every pro-abortion argument operates off of the same flawed premise. It's actually a logical fallacy called begging the question. Begging the question is when you assume your conclusion. It's when you assume the very thing that you must prove in order for your argument to work in the first place. Okay, for example, say for example, um, we need to keep abortion legal because that's a privacy decision and all you Christians need to shut up. Don't intrude into family private decisions. 
where a couple or a partner are discussing whether to get an abortion. I reply, should we allow parents to kill their toddlers as long as they do so in the privacy of their own homes? That's a privacy issue. How dare you intrude into that living room conversation when they're discussing whether to drown Timmy after his bath? And they go, Seth, that's different. Why? Because toddlers are human beings. And I go, ah. So the humanity that you're granting to the toddler, in my counterexample, you're denying to the preborn in your argument for abortion. So the question is not about privacy. The question is about what is the unborn? Are they an insensate blob of tissue whose removal is no different than the removal of a polyp? Or is it a distinct living and whole human being with full equality and rights before God, before society, and ought to be enshrined in our laws? What is the unborn, you see? So why do I give you that thought experiment? Because that logical fallacy of assuming the unborn is not human without ever proving it, yeah? Or accepting arguments to kill unborn people that you would never use to kill born people is the fundamental operating principle in nearly every street-level pro-choice argument you will ever hear. And that applies just as much on the Down syndrome genetic disability uh, debate as any other. So you would simply respond to that individual by saying, are you aware of the amniocentesis test that tries to diagnose Down syndrome yet? Did you know it's wrong a lot? I speak in schools all the time, so I have <clears throat> students raise their hand. For a while, this was happening at like every other school I spoke at. Hey, uh, Seth, just want to let you know, um, my mother was told I had Down syndrome in the womb and I don't. Now, I'm not saying that it's, it's less wrong or it's, it's more wrong to kill people without Down syndrome than it is with Down syndrome. That's not the point I'm making, but I'm saying the amniocentesis test is often wrong. Okay, so now I'm gonna repeat this back to the pro-choicer. Oh my gosh, we don't want to accidentally abort genetically perfect babies, you elitist. You know, the abnormalities that you didn't have and for which you're very grateful weren't wielded against you to murder you. So here's what we need to do, because you're right, you know, Down syndrome babies genetically imperfect, physically imperfect. I totally agree with you. We totally need to murder all those babies. So listen, let's just make sure that we let all babies be born to it and then test at birth if they have Down syndrome, since the amniocentesis test is often wrong. And then if they do have Down syndrome at birth, just chuck that infant out the hospital window. And the pro-choicer goes, oh, you sicko! No, you're the sicko. That was a thought experiment to show how debunked and disgusting your premises are that you're operating off of. So what have they assumed about the pre-borns? That they're somehow not fully human or not deserving of the same rights that they immediately assume born people are. Yeah, that's called born privilege. Lastly, that's also called eugenics the slow and deliberate elimination of those our society deems unfit. Ironically and predictably, the Democratic Party continues to take pages out of the most disgusting members of human history, be they Heinrich Himmler, be they Adolf Hitler, or be they the entire slavery establishment in 1850s. If you're somehow imperfect, we can kill you. If you know from the Holocaust, it wasn't just Jews that were rounded up and killed. It was those that were deemed idiots or retarded or genetically imperfect because those Nazis had the same elitist view of humanity and they wanted to get rid of the bad gene pool to just have perfect Aryans. And the same premise operates when they say things like, oh, we don't want to have babies with Down syndrome. Well, I would say one very simple phrase, abortion is never compassion. Mm -hmm. It is simply not. We live in a culture that wants to convince people that it is a compassionate act and I can tell you, I've sat before Congress with women who had abortions and are telling that story to Congress saying, the most compassionate thing I ever did was end the life of my child. I'm sorry, that's not compassionate. 
And we can speak that truth to people. We have to speak that truth to people. And we have to be able to point out the flaws in the way of thinking. And our world is gonna to try to tell you that you're not compassionate, that you don't care about women. But I hope that you take to heart and know that you know otherwise. Abortion is not compassion. And coming from a, a biblically-centered worldview where we believe that there is a life giver, God, who is in charge ultimately of giving or taking life, that is solely his right alone. There is a difference between, uh, between letting a life expire naturally and ending that life in the name of compassion, right, which is, which is ultimate, ultimately a murderous act. So uh, on, back to the political issue real quick, because I know that I have experienced this personally as a frustration. Uh, what do we say to those on the right who wave the banner of pro-life to get in with a certain audience or crowd, and when they have the authority and power to do something about it, they, they absolutely waver, and they don't hold to the convictions they speak about. And here we're, we're supposed to entrust them with, our, with the stewardship of, of, the, of the things that matter to us. What do we say to them? How do we send that message? I mean, obviously, the church getting involved, people with a God who fear God and understand these concepts running for office, anything else on that? I'm not a Republican because I love the GOP. I'm a Republican because that's the only political party that presents any viable opportunity at ending the genocide of baby image bearers. So when there are cowards, degenerates, liars, and soft bigots, because that's soft bigotry to say you're pro-life, but then when you have the opportunity to protect the preborn, you do nothing. Maybe we could even call it hard bigotry. We need to primary every single one of those people and vote them out. Now, had the church been contending in the political sphere from the very beginning, I mean, obviously, we were at the very genesis of this country. This country was launched by activist preachers and, and, uh, and Christian politicians. Not all of them were believers, but many of them were. But we, the, the American church abandoned sort of that political stewardship a long time ago. And so because of that, we allowed other people to fill in those institutions. I, I, just, I do not understand this irrational, idolatrous fear of being labeled political by the culture. You see, the other side, yes, amen. The other side does not care what we think about them. They don't care if we think they're political hacks. They don't give two rips about what we think about them. But most pastors, with the exception of people like Josh Blevins and Jack Hibbs and Rob McCoy and many others, most pastors are so afraid of their witness in the public square that they will do pretty much anything to avoid being labeled political. So when people tell me, and I get this, and I'm sure you get this, and I'm sure Melissa and Josh have gotten this, um, you know, um, Seth, you're making an idol out of politics. Just preach the gospel because only that can change the heart. And then if everyone loves Jesus and follows him, then all of the legislation and country will just be perfect. Um, of course, to which I say, really, what about all the men in the church looking at porn every day? I guess the gospel hasn't worked effectively enough to transform their moral behavior. <laughs> so you have to do more than just preach the gospel. You also have to stand for truth and contend for truth and stand for the least among us. But when they say, Seth, you're making an idol out of politics. You've taken your Christianity and you've meshed it with this sort of idol and you're still presenting it as Christianity. I say, hmm, you seem to have a far more idolatrous, idolatrous treatment of not being political. Hmm? You so much fear what man thinks about you, that you will abdicate 
your spiritual obligation in the public square to contend for righteousness so your leftist friends don't hate you and so progressives attend your church. Let me be very clear. When you stand for truth, you will experience initial persecution and hatred. And as you continue to stand and be faithful, God blesses it. You remember the Hebrew midwives that Pharaoh told to kill babies? And it said that they disobeyed Pharaoh because they feared God. And do you know what the end of that verse says? It's something like God blessed them or looked well upon them. Yes, God blesses obedience. So why is it that my friend Jack Hibbs and Rob McCoy and James Cadiz and uh, so many pastors all around the country right now who open their churches, uh, Jeff Johnson from Calvary Chapel Downey, um, why is it that these pastors and churches have experienced double to triple to quadruple growth and double to triple to quadruple giving? Now, some of those people transferred churches and they went there instead. But did you know a lot of those people are new converts to Christianity? Uh, Jack Hibbs and his pastoral team a month ago or six weeks ago baptized 1,200 people on the Southern California coast. And they weren't like Jesus-loving, 20-year-old, 20-year-walking-with-Jesus folks who forgot to get baptized. These were new converts. <laughs> so when you stand for truth, for life, and for liberty, it's a fragrant incense to the culture because eternity is written on the heart of man. We drink deeply from the streams of liberty, and we forget its source. Liberty is not man's idea. It's God's idea. Life is not man's idea. It's God's idea. He, he is the creator of life. He breathes life into you. So when you stand for self-evident principles and truth, it's a fragrant incense to the culture, and it woos them back to the only individual who will ever fill the hole in their heart, God himself. So part of getting political is actually just contending in the polity, in the public square. Politics just means public. It means how we debate ideas, talk about how we want to live together. And what a blessing in a constitutional republic <laughs> that we the people are the sovereign. So when people say, I don't get political, I'm afraid of you know, these political debates and stuff, I say, if you had the political authority and power to vote out Hitler, would you have done it? And everyone, of course, says yes, right? <laughs> or if you, had had, if you had been in 1850s America, would you have gotten political and registered with the GOP, the grand old party, to make sure that Lincoln defeated Stephen Douglas, the racist Democrat who wanted to uphold the institution of slavery? Guess what? All these people say yes, they would have. So why won't you do that for the pre-born? Because abortion is actually, you could argue, is actually significantly more evil than slavery. I'm going to make a statement that might offend someone in here. Okay, are you ready? Being pro-choice is actually worse than being a racist. While both ideologies involve the dehumanization of actual humans, the pro-choicer specifically targets a baby who can do nothing to stand for their rights or say, I dissent. Mm -hmm. Not all racists called for the slaughter of blacks, but all pro-choicers call for the slaughter of babies. And 63 million children have been slaughtered because of that ideology, and what else? Because of the laws which is the politics, which is the sphere that the church abandoned because they made an idol out of their witness. If a witness promises to tell the truth and God's people can't even speak the truth about life in the womb, I don't know what kind of God you're a witness for. Awesome. Thank you. I want to... I want to uh, elaborate on, on a little bit more pastorally on this idea of the gospel being enough, the transformation of the heart, because we do hear that a lot, and yet there's an incomplete thought there. I have said frequently, and I believe it with all my heart, that the gospel is enough, that the gospel is the answer and the key to the transformation of the human heart. But when I say that, 
what, what I mean is I come in with alignment with, with the book of James, all right? When I say the gospel is enough, I mean the gospel that doesn't merely change a person's heart, but changes the way that person approaches life itself. In every way, the gospel impacts. So I don't want to confine the gospel to some theological exegesis or, or some religious box. No, the gospel is something that is completely transformative in every sphere of life. So to say, well, I just preached the gospel, well, if the gospel you preach doesn't do more than make someone feel like they're maybe religious, it doesn't prompt them to action. James said it. He said, you, you say, show me your works, and I'll, I'll show you my faith. And said, James said, I will show you my faith by my works. Why? Because true faith that transforms a heart can't help but want to see the transformative power and righteousness of Jesus spread to every single area that they are surrounded by and in. And so when we talk about being involved in politics, we are not saying that it's politics and the gospel. What we're saying is if the gospel hasn't motivated you to do something to help other people experience righteousness in your society, then what gospel are you really believing? And what gospel are you really living? And that's just one slice of it where there's this outpouring of the gospel in every way. So as we come to that, I want to ask you guys and talk about this some, some people might look at this issue and go, it is so far beyond what we can, and it's so big, it's, it's so involved, there's so much work ahead, it seems so impossible. What could I possibly do as an individual human being uh, to make a difference in someone's life? To make a difference, uh, you know, I think, I think of the, the hangar mom in the back alley we talked about, and I think, man, what if a, what if a Christian saw them in the store with their boyfriend's hands all over them when they were a teenager and just went up to them and said, hey, your body was created by God and you have value. Could that have transformed someone's life? Where do we relationally, as, as stewards and ambassadors of the gospel, what are the areas we come into play to be the difference, to be the game changers in this? start. I think Seth and I have a lot of similar ideas. You know, the first thing I always like to tell people is uh, this is actually really simple, you guys. We kind of make it this big thing, but it's actually very simple. You do what you can when you can. And it means being pro-life to me means seeing the people right in front of me every single day. It means when's the last time you look somebody in the eye? When's the last time you smiled at somebody that you saw on the street, that you said hello that maybe you asked them a question when you saw them somewhere. For me, when I travel, I am engaging in conversations with so many people, my taxi driver, my Uber driver, you name it, right? I am planting seeds in conversations, not shying away from being honest about who I am, what Jesus has done in my life, all of those things. So that is something so simple, your words, your actions that you take are going to make a difference in individual lives and families and in our world. So it starts small, right? Seeing people being there for them, really communicating not only through what you say, but in the actions that you take. People are watching you. We are always watching people. People know if you're a safe person to come to, if they're going through something difficult in their life, if they're facing an unplanned pregnancy or a crisis, they're going to know if you're a safe person. 
So be so aware of that when you're around people, no matter where you are. What do you want people to know about you? Do you want them to know you're safe? How does that look? What words do you use? How do you educate someone about the resources, just like your pregnancy center? I've spoken at your pregnancy center before. Pregnancy center, raise your hand in here. I know you're in here. There they are. Your pregnancy center is an incredible resource here in your community. Most people know where to go to have an abortion or even get the chemical pills these days, but they don't know where to go to get help. So being that person who can activate the people who can help them or being that person that can help. So for me, that's ground zero, right? Really simple, being that person. But then it also then goes to the next layer, right? Being actively involved. So you volunteer here at your church. You volunteer at the pregnancy center. You can volunteer at a right to life organization or yes, in a political organization. Then it goes a step further, right? It means you're actively involved by educating people in your community about the issue, reaching out to your legislators. And yes, folks, we contact our legislators when they are voting in a way that we don't agree with. But when's the last time you've contacted your legislator to say thank you? I'm a big fan of thanking those who are doing the right thing because they don't hear it often enough. If we wanna shape behavior, we don't just write, talk to people when it's a negative behavior. We want to reinforce that positive behavior. So reach out to those legislators. Thank those who are doing the right thing. Blow up the phone lines and the emails of the people who are not voting in a way that adheres with your beliefs. And don't take the gas off. Guess what? I can tell you they remember you. So be sure to reach out to them. Get involved and don't shy away from it. So for me, those are some of the simple ways we are involved. I'll let you jump in there. So I talk to people in the conservative movement a lot. I also talk to obviously a lot of pastors because I speak in their churches or I'm trying to get them to let me speak in their churches and overcome this idolatry of not being political. But I ask these, I often ask people about pregnancy resource centers or I'll use the term PRC, you know, the acronym or CPC, Crisis Pregnancy Center or PCC, Pregnancy Care Clinic, it's all the same thing. And you know how many people have no idea what I'm talking about? It's really tragic, actually. The conservative movement writ large doesn't know what a pregnancy resource center is. Now, of course, there's lots of pro-life activists who double as conservative activists. And, and so, of course, of course, there is a knowledge of PRCs in the conservative movement. But in, as a whole, most of them probably go, a what? A PR what? What's that? I had a pastor whose church I spoke at pre-shutdowns, and he seemed like a pretty pro-life dude, and he knew that I was a little bit fiery, and he still gave me his pulpit. And I, I talked about pregnancy resource centers, and he said, he literally, he said, what's that? And he's just in Irvine, California, like huge hub of Orange County. He had no idea what I was talking about. And I was like, this is a problem, folks. So when Melissa says everyone knows where to get an abortion, and very few people know where to get help, that's very true. And because I keynote pregnancy center banquets all around the country, and because my mother was directing a pregnancy resource center while I was a fetus, so I've been a pro-life activist since I was a zygote, <laughs> I can tell you that most of these pregnancy resource centers are completely underfunded and understaffed. And the biggest complaint I get from the directors and staff when, when we hang out before the banquet is, ah, man, could you say something to the pastors? And I'm like, hoo -hoo, don't let me loose on them. But they're like, if we only had more support from our churches, I'm like, oh. So let me tell you something, pregnancy resource centers only exist in the gap left by the bride of Christ. Now, 
I love pregnancy resource centers, and I think that they're the solution to ending abortion. They're one of the solutions um, from a cultural, societal, local level. But the reason that they've stepped up to the plate is because pastors walked away from the plate. They went back to the dugout to chill and prep their sermons, kind of like the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Hmm. Man was traveling on the road. He was beaten, mugged, robbed, and left for dead. As he was sitting on the side of the road, half dead, according to Luke's gospel, two pastors walked by. Praise Jesus! The pastors are here, right? They walked by on the other side of the road. So they didn't go out of their way to love a bleeding victim. They went out of their way to avoid the bleeding victim. How many of us have driven by on the other side of the road where our neighbors were bleeding? where our neighbors were having their limbs ripped off of their body, and it was justified under the mantle reproductive justice, oh, and by the way, you funded it. It was the Good Samaritan, the bleeding victim's natural enemy, because remember, Jews and Samaritans hated one another, who when he saw the bleeding victim, Luke's gospel said that he had compassion. Huh? So the Levite and the priest, guess what? They were probably personally opposed to street mugging. They were probably anti-street mugging. Like most pastors who don't get involved on abortion will say that they're against abortion and pro-life. The Levite and the priest were religious leaders. They probably would have said, it's a moral wrong to rob someone and beat them on the street. But they didn't put feet to their faith. It was attitudinal opposition and not active opposition. They didn't do anything to love this bleeding neighbor. The good Samaritan pours on oil and wine, bandages his wounds, puts him on his own donkey so he has to walk, takes him to the nearest inn, nurses him back to health. Then he tells the innkeeper, I have to go now, I'm a busy man, but I'm gonna cut you a check for whatever cost you accumulate in caring for this bleeding victim while I was gone. The good Samaritan makes radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money to love a bleeding victim who was in need of help. The call for Christians is actually greater than the Good Samaritan, and here's why. Unlike the Good Samaritan, we know when and where these neighbors are going to be killed. The Good Samaritan was just chilling. He was just traveling, and oh gosh, there's a bleeding dude. Let me rush and help him. How much greater is our responsibility if we knew at what time a mob was going to show up and beat up that guy? <laughs> oh, we can stop this injustice from happening before it does. That means you have greater responsibility, not less. So we actually have a greater responsibility than the Good Samaritan did. Time, energy, and money. Your energy, volunteer. Your time, volunteer. Your energy, get your hands dirty. And your money, you should be giving to the pro-life causes. But I think everyone has a role to play in ending abortion. Just like we all look with shame and condemnation on American pulpits in 1850 because people didn't adopt personal responsibility to end slavery. So what does that look like? Well, there's a lot of ways to get involved, but I, I would like to submit this to you. If Planned Parenthood opened up a new infanticide alarm of their business and all the Democrats legalized it or something crazy, and now Planned Parenthood is also offering infanticidal services, so killing babies up to one year outside of the womb, what would be the response of pulpits and pastors and lay people in local communities? I would hope and I would think it would be massive protests outside of these centers. <laughs> and probably some of the men would, would run up to the moms and dads and rip the one-year-old out of their hands and run away with the baby. <laughs> you know, You're not going to kill this baby. I mean, obviously, you can't do that with a pregnant mother. But you, you know what I mean, how actively we would be engaged in saving that infant. But how many of us show up outside of today's concentration camps, today's death camps? We need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. We are far too comfortable in American Christianity, good Lord. 
Why? Why, is it, why should we get comfortable? Because when we're weak, he's strong. Because he works through us. So it's fascinating. As my friend Jack Hibbs says, you need to take a temperature on your faith. You need to take a temperature on your Christianity. If it's boring, you need to switch things up. You need to start stepping out in faith and seeing what God will do when you show up where he's already working. I would submit to you that abortion centers are the largest unreached mission field in the United States of America. There is only one place in this country where we can say this statement of that location. We know every day where broken and hurting people are showing up and innocent human beings are scheduled to die. Whose heart is more ready for the seeds of the gospel than the hearts of men and women who have rationalized in their mind paying a hitman to kill their child? What a beautiful opportunity to remind them whose idea life is and who's knitting that child together in the womb right now and also who is willing to sacrifice for you. Not just Christ on the cross, but also his people are ready, willing, and excited to sacrifice for you. And this is why I partner with Love Life out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and we're blowing them up all over the country right now because their goal is to mobilize a Christian witness outside every abortion center in the country. Every day they're open, offering the hope of the gospel and the help of the local church that would result in an end to abortion and the orphan crisis. Okay, they're all born again, brothers and sisters. The work they do is wonderful. We're, we now have hundreds of people showing up on prayer walks outside of abortion clinics in Southern California, where I live, because of the faithfulness of firstly brave shepherds and pastors, and then the obedience of their flock to respond to the call of duty and respond to impulses at once awe-striking and irresistible, to quote Winston Churchill, that there's something going on in space and time that spells duty. Aslan's on the move, and when he lands, we all have a duty to engage on behalf of righteousness. That impact has been so powerful through that ministry that they had a woman in New York come to them on the sidewalk outside of an abortion center and tell the Christians from Love Life, I want to tell you that I was inside of that abortion center last week or yesterday, and the abortion worker told me to come back tomorrow because the Christians would be here and they would actually help me. And that's starting to happen in cities across the country. In Charlotte, there was an abortion staff worker who went to a baby shower for her niece, or for her niece's baby, and <laughs> she discovered that her niece had gone in for an abortion the week before. Not to her center, but to someone else's. And the Christians were outside. And they said, we're here, we love you. We're gonna fight for you and that child, and we're gonna champion you as a mother. She rejected abortion. So when this abortion staff worker learned that she was only attending her second niece's baby shower because of the faithfulness of Christians. She left the industry, started a catering business, and now caters dinners for the events that Love Life puts on in Charlotte. So when the hearts of abortion staff workers are changing because of the fragrance of the gospel and the obedience of Christians, you know something's changing in the country. This is what we're bringing all over the country. There are four ways for you to get involved. Sidewalk counseling, yes show up outside of abortion centers. Don't worry, we have all the training for you. It's all over Zoom. You don't even have to go anywhere. Mentor families. Now that she chooses life, a couple takes her out to lunch, dinner, loves on her, has her over for dinner twice a, twice a week, helps throw her baby shower, and becomes her best friend. Post-abortion healing and orphan foster care. Those are the four ministry pillars of Love Life. If you go to lovelife.org forward slash America, you can fill out a form. They'll reach out to you, and you can start getting trained 
through professional pro-life activists in one of those ministry pillars. It's a 45, 50 minute drive to some of the abortion centers in Kansas City. And I would ask you to mirror the Good Samaritan who is ultimately just a picture of Christ himself by starting to actually sacrifice your time, your energy, and your money so that you can stand before God one day and say, I did everything I could to stop the genocide of your babies. We're gonna continue to make that information available uh, as a church to you guys uh, in the days to come. But I think of the words of Paul uh, who said, how will they believe unless someone preaches and how will they preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, blessed are the feet of those who bring the gospel, the good news of the gospel. And uh, it's time for us to be sent, us to be goers. You know, we as a church have, are, are completely unique in that we have and possess the one thing that no legislator can possess, that no politician can possess, that no government can possess. And that is to give someone the answer of how to be reconciled to God and find hope and peace and eternal salvation and security. And that even makes our responsible that much greater to champion this cause. Um, one final word, and we're going to kind of bring this to a close tonight. Um, Melissa, there's, let's say, in this audience, un unbeknownst to us or watching online, uh, there is someone who has f just found out or has been living with this reality that uh, their mother uh, tried to end their life, and they are a survivor of an abortion. Uh, one, one word uh, to them about what you do or what they're carrying, uh, one word of encouragement, and then on the other end of that, someone in here, someone watching who has been on the, the giving end of that, who has tried to end the life of their child, um, maybe one of you could just speak to the hope of the gospel and just a word to them about their future. We have seven documented survivors in the state of Missouri, and I say documented because I know that there are tens of thousands of abortion survivors across the United States, but seven documented. So chances are pretty good you're gonna come across a survivor from time to time. Our youngest documented survivor is a teenager. Something to think about, folks. For anyone who encounters a survivor, or if you're a survivor and you watch this, I want you to know you're not alone. Our world tries to tell us that we must be the only one, and there is so much shame that we suffer in our lives, but you are not alone. And we have this whole community of survivors now worldwide who are centralized through us at the Abortion Survivors Network, and we want you to be a part of our community. We want you to experience what it's like to be accepted, not rejected, and know what unconditional love feels like. We want to walk beside you in your healing even if you've been healing your entire lifetime, there's still more healing that can come, as particularly in a community of people who can relate to what you've gone through. And we're here to equip you and empower you. Most survivors will never share their story publicly. We don't expect that. And I often tell people I caution against it um, until they are healed and whole and they feel like they are being called out to do so. So no matter if someone shares their story or not, there is a place for that survivor here at the Abortion Survivors Network. And I'll let you talk to the women. Yeah, um, and the men. Uh, I mean, I didn't get a chance to really address men in particular, but I, I would call the lion out of each of you. You know, so much of what's happening in our country, period, but also on abortion, is because men are not being men. 
And for years now, the feminist movement told men to be women and to behave like women. Now, that's not to, d to um, demean women. That's to say that men and women have different and beautiful and unique and needed roles. And when men function as men and women function as women, the entire society's changed for the better. This goes back to our conversation over marriage, right? When a man is functioning as a man and a woman is functioning as a woman and they're loving and supporting one another and they're rearing children for the good of society and for their own children, that changes the whole world. So for you, you parents who are very busy and you're just raising children and you feel bad that maybe you can't get in, involved in some of these causes as you'd like to, uh, don't feel bad. You're doing the most important work. Uh, raising children isn't to prepare for the better work. It is the better work and it is in obedience to God. So, so I want to say that as well. But for any man in here who's pressured, manipulated an abortion, paid for, or stood by and did nothing, or who didn't know that his wife, girlfriend, or fling arranged the death of his own child, or for the women who secured an abortion, who celebrated it, who felt manipulated and tricked, who felt forced or pressured, regardless of the circumstances of it, there has to be healing. Now, that healing is going to look different because if you were forced by your degenerate father when you were 15 to get an abortion, it's not your fault, <laughs> okay? Let me be very clear. I'm not saying that you arranged the death of your own child. No, you had horrible parents who forced you to get an abortion. That's different than someone who says, I need to fit into my prom dress. You know, I don't want to lose my job, so I got an abortion. Everyone experiences this different, but there still has to be healing. And, and we want the church, the bride of Christ, to be the hub where all of that happens because the gospel is a salve, because it tells you, that even though you are more wicked than you could possibly imagine, you are more loved in Christ than you could possibly hope or dare to hope. And so that's what we would want to tell you. And as I said this morning, if you weren't here, listen, if there's hope for King David, there's hope for you. The dude was a freaking peeping Tom who was impregnating women and murdering their husbands, okay? And he was called a man after God's own heart. So if there's hope for King David, there's hope for you. And he said regarding his baby that died through his fling with Bathsheba, my son will not return to me, but I will go to him. Listen, the only hope for your heart, the only hope for your soul is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says that the, the, <laughs> the divine logos and creator of the universe took on zygote and fetal flesh to identify with you at your most vulnerable stage in the womb, making himself susceptible to being abused, targeted, violently attacked, and ultimately murdered on a cross because he was the only perfect being who could step up and take your punishment. Everyone else was guilty. No one else could take your sins. It was only Christ himself that could do that. And of course, we don't have time to dive into the, the apologetics of the Christian worldview, but hundreds of people saw him risen and all of the disciples went to their death. Defending what? Defending a fiction or a fantasy that they hallucinated when they saw their risen Christ and teacher walking around again? No, because it actually happened and they actually saw him. But that Christ entered human history in a womb. So if that doesn't tell you what God thinks about life in the womb, I don't know what will. That is the only hope for your heart because we actually want to see you restored and healed because I believe that Jesus would want to make beauty out of your ashes. And I believe that he actually wants you to help where you used to hurt. I think that the most powerful voices after abortion survivors, which when they're healed are, I mean, demons go flinging. Demons just have their little demon tails stuck between their butts when abortion survivors are healed and activated. But after abortion survivors, the most impactful voices in this country are the men and women who played a role in an abortion, who were healed, who have repented, and who can now stand in the middle of the road of the culture of death with a big sign that says, stop! And don't do what I did.
And in a culture that has an emphasis on feeling and lived experiences, which have a role, but of course it's just out of control now. Objective truth doesn't matter. It's just, what did you experience? Right. Well, we might as well utilize that aspect of the culture by saying, well, here's my story. And I want all of you who have played a role in abortion to be empowered and healed and activated to tell that story powerfully, to change minds, change hearts, and save lives. Amen. And one final word to, uh, as they're speaking, um, perhaps someone watching online, someone here, or someone who will, who will stumble across this in the future at some point in time, is contemplating in the place of, do I get an abortion or do I keep my baby in that place where fear is speaking loudly, where the, the, the apparent convenience of just getting out of this and, and just putting it behind me and I can just do this, this one act and then I can just get it behind me, it's all a master manipulation from the father of lies, a spiritual enemy named Satan who is trying to convince you that by doing the wrong thing, you can achieve the right outcome. And Trust the experience of many who have gone before you to say that that one act can bring forth a lifetime of guilt and shame and open up uh, things for the rest of your life that, you, that God doesn't want for you. And we want you to know that, that here at Grace Church, uh, we are going to be committed more than ever, not only to being against your abortion, but for you. If you need a place, we will find a way. <laughs> If you need a person, if you need counsel, we will find and make a way. But don't go without getting that objective help and opinion and truth in your life. Amen. I will all add this final thing. What would it look like if this church developed a reputation in this community that when a woman's facing an unplanned pregnancy, they all know where to go? What would it look like if the reputation of the bride of Christ writ large was so powerful because they were so involved in the public square and seeking the good of the city where they had been sent into exile, just like the Israelites, that everyone knew that while we might demean some of the positions of those Christians, boy, do they go to the wall sacrificially for those in need. But that hasn't been the reputation of the church on many issues, on some, but almost never on life in America. Because People don't even know what a pregnancy resource center is. They don't know what a church is. They don't know that churches are pro-life because most of them don't live like they're pro-life. Churches like Calvary Chapel Chino Hills, churches like Godspeed Calvary Chapel where I go to and many others are starting to develop an incredible reputation in the community because they're standing for life so boldly and regularly. Do you know what's starting to happen? People hear about it. And then they reach out to someone that they know at their church and they say, my friend, my friend's daughter, my niece, my son's girlfriend has an abortion scheduled for next week. Can you guys help? I just got a text right before I left for this trip of a woman from our church who reached out to the pastors and to me because her son had impregnated his girlfriend. She had an abortion scheduled. She showed up late and they wouldn't take her. And she only had a few days. And now our counseling team at our church is connecting with her trying to sit down with her and the boyfriend. Why? Because our church is standing for life and now has a reputation that everyone knows there's people there who will help. Mm -hmm. And we only started this pro-life ministry at, at my home church in February. What would it look like if 20 or 30% of American churches in this country were so involved in standing for life? What would that do to the social fabric of communities? 
Yeah, I may not like those Christians, but boy, do they go to the wall sacrificially for me. Just like Oscar Schindler, just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just like William Wilberforce, just like Frederick Douglass, just like Harriet Tubman. And the list goes on and on and on. What if we were to develop that type of reputation? Not only would we save millions of babies, change the entire social fabric of the country, and the politics would probably soon follow because God would bless a land of people in a country who eradicated this evil, and I believe he would pour out blessings more than we would know what to do with if we turned from this evil as a country, but also because it's simply obedience. But we will all be held accountable for all things done, whether good or bad. Think about that, and think about how you could build that reputation starting here at this church. You know dozens of women every week, if not more, drive from Missouri, and they drive to Kansas City, and they pay someone to kill their baby. Why are we not there? And why aren't we developing a reputation as the bride of Christ to say, we'll take all the babies, but better yet, we want you to keep the baby because we believe your child has a natural claim to their own mother and father, and we're going to champion you as parents. We're going to throw you a baby shower. We're going to get you diapers for two years, help you get a job, help you find an apartment if you need it, and get you a car if you need to get it. And we are going to rally around you and make financial sacrifices to love our neighbor. Consider what that would do to the underpinnings and social fabric of this country. Can we give our guests a hand for being with us tonight? Thank you guys so much. That was such a joy. And um, we're actually not going to uh, do a Q&A tonight because I looked at the clock and we've got children that need to be a uh, uh, loved and picked up, and children's ministry workers that are probably ready for that as well. So, uh, But why don't we have a word of prayer as we close together? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for challenging us this day um, with things that are very dear to your heart. We thank you for Melissa and for the work that she is championing, and we just pray that you would use these voices, uh, nearly 400 now, uh, voices of survivors speaking up, and being active with their testimony that you've entrusted to them. Lord, we pray for your uh, protection over them, for them to be empowered, Lord, and for doors of opportunity to open before them, Lord, to even increase this voice within our nation. We thank you for Seth and his wife Olivia and their family, Lord. We thank you for his, uh, the, the, the gift you've given him of, of his intelligence, of his learnedness, of his a boldness and courage. We just ask, Lord, that as he continues to uh, find influence and grow in this area, um, that you would show him favor, Lord, and grant him continued uh, wisdom and insight from your word and from uh, your heart as he champions and is a voice for the unborn. And so, Lord, we thank you for this night. We just pray that you would put in each of our hearts a conviction of how you want us to play a part in being part of your culture of life in the midst of a culture of death. All It's all around us, Lord. And may we be able to have an impact right where we are in our city for the good of those around us. Lord, we love you, and we pray that we would do this empowered by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus. And everyone agreed and said, amen and amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for coming out tonight. 
Well, thank you guys for tuning in for that special conversation with Melissa Odin and Pastor Josh Blevins. If you're ever in Kansas City, uh, head to 35, 40 minutes north to St. Joseph, Missouri and go to Grace Calvary Chapel and tell Pastor Josh Blevins I said hi. Phenomenal church. Um, and follow Melissa Odin on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Follow the Abortion Survivors Network. If you're moved by their work of empowering abortion survivors to heal and find their voice to stand in the culture of death, which tells them that they had no right to life and gives them the tools to stand in the culture of death, then consider supporting the Abortion Survivors Network and Melissa's very important work in pricking the collective conscience of the culture and awakening their moral intuitions. If you want to engage with me and learn more, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to see my speaking schedule if you want to hear me speak live and local, uh, or to book me for an event as my 2021 calendar is almost full and we'll begin booking that January 2022 for Sanctity of Life bookings very soon. Uh, head on over to YouTube. Um, give us a subscription. It really helps us reach more people as long as I can fly under the radar at the technocrats um, at Google. Give this show a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. And we'll see you next week. Thanks so much. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.